The legal views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute or contain legal advice. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. I'm joined by my co-host, Dave. How's it going, Dave? Going good, Ryan. Happy 4th of July weekend. Happy 4th of July weekend. Let me ask you something, because I've been going back and forth on this. Uh, a lot of people take this weekend off. We didn't. Mm-hmm. Are we more or less patriotic because we're here right now? Are we more patriotic because we're giving people content even on a 4th of July weekend? Or are we less patriotic because we're not taking the weekend off and celebrating this holiday properly? Interesting question. I'm not sure. Because, I mean, yeah, actually, I do have the three-day weekend. We're not working, although it's a paid holiday for me, so that's good. I'm not sure about how you get it. Um, but... I don't know, man. But it's July 2nd, so I mean, I think we're good. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. I think we're okay. But this is really like the perfect day to have 4th of July, like where it's, you know, during the week, so you get more of that weekend as opposed to when they just stick it like on a, on a right. Saturday or something. But listen, I think, if you're talking about 4th of July, I think I found the best way to celebrate it. Okay. I found one of the most amazing... American things, I think, ever. Oh my God! Yes, you were not. You were not shutting up about this. Walking into the studio, you are super happy. Yes, and because here's the thing: when you think America, the United States of America, what's the first thing you think of? Patrick Stewart in England. That's right. <laughs> but second thing you think of after Patrick Stewart, Royal Shakespeare trained, cowboy songs. Yes, and Ryan, cowboy Patrick Stewart. Lives and Times Records and Tapes proudly presents Sir Patrick Stewart's Cowboy Classics. Keep rolling, 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 for the streams are swollen. Keep them doggies rolling, raw hide. Through rain and wind and weather, hell bent for leather. Wishing my gal was by my side. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out. Ride him in, raw Wow, Patrick Stewart, uh, he's always been an underrated singer, Patrick uh-huh. Stewart. Uh-huh. And, and, oh, by the way, is this just sort of your way to pander to the the remnants of Star Trek fans who were listening from last week and are like, oh, let's give this next episode a chance? No, no one, hello, Patrick Stewart's amazing anyway. We, we've got the poster of Patrick Stewart in the studio. We do indeed. So he's always watching, I, you know, I'm just going to call it, he's the patron Patron, not the patron, patron saint. There we go. Patron saint. <laughs> it's yeah. a compound word, a patron um, <laughs> of, of the podcast, Sir Patrick Stewart, the great, yes. the, the, the knight. He's the, he's the, the podcast knight. There you go. There we go. Um, but no, this is real, folks. That wasn't just like a thing. You can go to P Stew Sings. So, of course. So P S T E W Sings.com. And unfortunately, you know, you'll be, you'll be able to see the whole video there and see uh, all, all of the. The songs he sings he so many cowboy songs uh, over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a great you know, it's the time life recordings. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, the main set is is sold out. But you know, you can get a five song sampler. You know, um, I think on a, from Bandcamp or, or whatever thing. But all proceeds, and this is again seriously, all proceeds uh, from like his sales go to the International Rescue Committee to help crisis affected families in Europe, the Middle East, and elsewhere around the world. And uh, their website is rescue.org. Um, but that was amazing. Okay. Before That's we, amazing. Yes, it is. And okay, before we move on with the rest of the show, I have to hear the bridge one more time. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in. 
I, right, I, I just don't you want to now <laughs> go out west, saddle up some horses, like ride around Utah and Colorado and you know the Southwest and go by Capitol Dome and Capitol Reef and everything with that constantly in your ear? Very much so. Yeah, like, I, I want to get in like a Conestoga wagon or you know lead a cattle driver. Oh my god, I. There's nothing Patrick Stewart can't do that yeah. we're not going to find wildly entertaining. I think he's now going to be the nation's preeminent cowboy. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, Move over, Gene Autry. <laughs> if you want to get closer to the Break the Business podcast, and we want to get closer to you, too, oh, you can yeah. rate, review, and subscribe to us by uh, checking us out on iTunes and SoundCloud. You send us some nice ratings. Um, you subscribe. That way you get the podcast right away. You don't have to figure out, oh, when's it going up on Sunday? It's going up sometime on Sunday, but you'll get it right away if you subscribe. You can email the podcast at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can email us if you have questions you want Dave and I to answer on the show. If it's like a indie artist type question, it'll probably go to me. If it's a pop culture question, they're probably going to care what you think more than I do, Dave. Yeah, probably. But either way, that's where you find us. Or if you just want to criticize us, let us know what we're doing well. Let us know the many things we're doing poorly. Break the business at gmail.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Ryan K A I R. Where can they follow you on Twitter, Dave? At MetalDave85. All right. And if you want to see us in person, because this is now an us thing, because you're going to be there, mm -hmm. um, July 7th, Books and Books in Coral Gables. I'm doing a book event for my mm -hmm. book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence, and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. That's Books and Books in Coral Gables, 6 30 p.m. July 7th, and mm -hmm. uh, we have just closed this deal. I'm super excited about this. Keith Johns, who was on the show a few weeks ago, a great indie artist, he's going to be there too. Oh, cool. And he's going to be playing. Nice. So if you don't like the sound of my voice and you don't like the sound of David's voice, you might still want to go just to be able to hear the sound of a much cooler voice, Keith Johns. Well, if you don't like the sound of both of our voices, announce yourself to us there so we can punch you in the face. Oh, see, that's not how you get them onto our side. Like, we're, 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 we're trying to bring people into the fold. Uh, threats of okay. violence is not the way to get there. All right, fine. We'll punch them in the face with our voices? With our smooth voices. That'll be the punch in the face, Ryan. <laughs> punch Hot. them on the face. We're going to punch them in the face with knowledge, with especially. Dul with dulcet tones. See, I was doing a different thing there. Well, I, I was care. I was trying to segue into that because I was going to do this thing where I was like, we're going to punch them in the face with knowledge because coming up in the next segment, we got George Howard, professor at the Berkeley College of Music. But you didn't let me do it because you had to get your dulcet tones thing in there. Well, absolutely, Ryan. That's what dulcet tones allow you to do. They allow you to interrupt anything with dulcet tones. I want to be mad at you, but that sounds beautiful. Exactly. I, you I, cannot I get be lost mad in the voice. At dulcet tones. Dulcet tones, by the way, I think should be a Ben and Jerry's flavor. What exactly it is, I don't know. But doesn't it sound like it? I think because it sounds like dulce de leche. Dulcet tones. Yeah. Dude, yeah. That could be your brand of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Dave's dulcet tones. And just like you with like a thumbs up, yeah. two thumbs up and smiling. Yeah. The, uh, now we started to do some, audio, uh, some, some visual gags here. Which always translate well. Which is, yeah, it's always good for podcasting. Anyway, coming up in the next segment, as we, mm -hmm. as I hinted at, uh, we have George a Howard. music business professor at Berkeley College of Music, so he's a little qualified to talk about this stuff. George Howard, he's going to speak specifically about the Open Music Initiative. This is something mm -hmm. that uh, we've discussed in a previous episode where we talked about this emerging initiative, which, among other things, is going to try to make it easier for rights holders, especially indie artists, to be identified and more easily compensated for their work. So they're yeah. among the undertakings we're yeah. talking about. You definitely want to have people compensated for their work, Ryan. Yeah, you know. That that helps. 
they're trying to create a database among yeah. other things they're trying to do. They're trying to create a database, which sort of like the IMDB of music where every, every song and all the rights holders will have all the rights holders identified and allow those people to get paid for their work more efficiently. This is a big gap in our industry right now. And if to the extent that these guys can fill it, it's going to be huge. Um, these guys aren't alone. There's a lot of artists, labels, other music industry movers and shakers involved with this initiative. It's a big deal. And I'm glad that we're going to get to talk to oh, one of the people yeah. who's making it happen. Yeah, if you go to their website, you'll be able to see exactly who's a member of the program, and it's, it's a heck of a list. It's extensive. It's uh, a heck of a list. Uh, that's open-music.org. We're looking forward to talking to George Howard in the next segment. But before we get there, mm -hmm. um, let's uh, we have a little bit of entertainment law news. Why did you touch me? You killed innocent people. The means to an end. You started a massacre. I caused the revolution. You betrayed the law. Law. Good stuff as always. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Mr. Asante. Uh, so, Dave, about the, earlier this week or last week, over 180 superstar artists, including Taylor Swift, U2, Lady Gaga, you know, basically a bunch of artists that you don't care about because I didn't say Metallica anywhere in there. Right. Um, Maroon 5, a lot of major music organizations, Universal Music, ASCAP, BMI, Probably a lot of the same people who are doing the open music initiative, so, ironically. So, so the music elites. Yes, the music elites. That's music 1%. Yes. Uh, music's 1% have openly petitioned for changes to be made to the safe harbor provisions of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998. Also known as the DMCA. That's right. And I'll admit, that sounds really boring the way I pushed it out there. It sounds like oh, all they're trying to do is just change some obscure piece of copyright law. But this, folks, is a big deal. And... It's something you all have to be mindful of because this is very, very big for indie artists. These provisions, as they currently exist, allow online platforms such as YouTube and SoundCloud, which you, know, you and I depend mm -hmm. on to do what we do. Um, it allows those organizations to be held not liable for acts of copyright infringement that occur by users on their site as long as the platform follows certain procedures, which include if there is an infringing video on the site, uh, the, the right copyright holder can say to YouTube, hey take this down, and then you take it down. Right, yeah. I mean, we've all been there. You know, you Google something, and you see you see something on YouTube that, you know, usually you have to pay for if it's like a movie or a clip. Sure. Something that, you know, you just want to see. And sometimes you then you say you see it's gone. Like, oh, this has been taken down. Right. You know, request of the uh, the, the creator know, or something like that. Yeah, whatever. usually it's like the, the movie studio or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, they always have that language. So basically, yeah, what that says is, okay, YouTube is not sued. Right. actually by a studio saying, hey, wait a minute, you have, you have this movie playing up there. We're suing you for $10 million. It just says, like, hey, write a letter, cease and desist, take it down, and YouTube says, like, okay, all right. That's exactly right. And without that law, you know, a site like YouTube could be vulnerable to secondary liability for having this mm -hmm. infringing video on their site, even though they, had, they didn't know about it. All right. they did was just create a platform for people to post content. And the point of this law is to strike a balance between protecting copyright holders... Mm -hmm. because that's important and we love copyrights around here but also with the practical reality that a website like youtube cannot possibly police every single video that comes on its platform i was actually reading this uh 500 hours of content are uploaded to youtube every minute wow yeah you know, there's over i think it's like over a, a hundred million videos that are currently on the site right now something insane like that dude that's like a billion videos <laughs> that's right million with a b yeah <laughs> um <laughs> So, it, and granted, it's not a perfect piece of law. There's plenty that people are finding annoying about this notice and takedown procedure on both sides, including people who have legitimately posted things to YouTube that don't violate copyright and they still get hit with one of these takedown notices. So it's not perfect, but 
all of these artists who want it repealed because they're saying the safe harbor provision is allowing YouTube to make mm-hmm. money off us without compensation. Um, it's you shouldn't repeal it unless you can actually propose something that can strike the balance better. Like we're not going to replace it until you propose the better thing first. And this is scary. Um, I don't hear indie artists freaking out about this and they really need to. If we get rid of the DMCA safe Harbor provisions, bye-bye YouTube, bye-bye SoundCloud, bye-bye Reddit, bye-bye any website where third parties can post content to the platform. Because if these platforms cannot, you know, have this safe Harbor, they can't exist because it's way too risky. Anybody can post something that ends your website tomorrow. Well, I mean, it even goes beyond just indie artists. It goes to the general public. That's right. Oh, yeah. And, and totally, you know, mess. I mean, like we love YouTube. I mean, talk about a chilling effect. I mean, you're basically getting rid of these major platforms. I mean, it, it becomes then to me anyway, you know, starts getting into like a speech territory. It, I mean, it really limits, you know, what's out there. And I think, you know, we were talking about the little, I think it's, it's just probably, yeah, the artists and these companies. And again, this, it's, it's all the, it's all the 1% mm-hmm. pushing back on what they see the pendulum swinging so far and technology is allowed everything be available to everyone and everyone to post everything and have, there's no more really, res- let's say respective, but just people post up without like, oh, I don't care. You know, I'm yeah. like, oh, I like this Taylor Swift video. I'm going to post it, you know, but yeah, if, if, if this safe harbor provision is gone and now those sites, companies are open to suits that would, let's be honest, completely end them and bankrupt them and Absolutely. just destroy them, that affects basically the you know the global community. Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting you bring up chilling effect. Like, we talk about having a town square mm-hmm. where, people, where, where viewpoints can be communicated. Yeah, free exchange of ideas. Right. Yeah. And in the 21st century, YouTube is the town square. Mm-hmm. Reddit is the town square. Like... This is where things are being communicated. You well, take I mean, shoot, that away, actually, it, it's problematic. Facebook and Twitter, too, I would imagine, then would also be part of that at some point then, too, because people post stuff there all the time. It would seem so. Any any sort of platform where third parties are posting content. And it's interesting that you bring up like Music's 1% and Music's Elite. And that's what's, what's so troubling about this petition, Dave, is if mm-hmm. you look at the names on this list, they are all superstars. They're all the people you'd expect to be on there. But they're a certain kind of superstar. They generally tend to be superstars who are so famous that they don't need platforms like YouTube to be successful. A lot of them are, are pre, you know, got their success pre-YouTube, mm-hmm. you know, don't really need that platform. And <laughs> yeah. oh, you're saying YouTube didn't really rise through the ranks of <laughs> YouTube right. in the early 80s? Well, you don't remember those like old silly YouTube videos that Bono, you know, posted back, you know, in the 80s? Oh, and yeah. During the Troubles, they really put one on YouTube a lot to vent their frustration. That's right. A lot of the Troubles in Ireland. We got to go on YouTube and... Really, really let people know what's going on. I think that's um, more Scottish now. I don't know. And these are artists that if they wanted like a site to put up videos, they would just use something like Vivo, Vivo and license their content. So they don't uh-huh. need YouTube. And also, if you look at this list, what's interesting is not that there are, you know, not that there are superstars, but that the superstars that aren't on there are the ones who became superstars because of YouTube or owe their success to YouTube. For example, Justin Bieber. Not on there. Carmen, not on there. Boyce Avenue, not on there. Kina Granis, not on there. Rebecca Grayson Black, Chance, not on there. Rebecca Black is indeed not on there. I actually checked that one because uh, um, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> well, because like I, I actually looked, and yes, Rebecca Black was not on there. I didn't want to bring it up during this, you know, my notes here, but yes, she's nowhere to be found. Sai, not on there. Lana Del Rey, Goche, Katy Perry, not in this petition because. These people get it. The new school artists, the new school superstars understand the value this platform has and what it's done for their career. 
Um, so basically, what you're saying is you are banning you two from this show. Yes, why not? You're taking Take that, that Bono. Good yeah. luck having a career now. Yeah. You are not allowed on the Break the Business podcast. Okay, well, you heard it here, <laughs> folks. Um, but this is, this is scary because I think when Congress sees a petition like this and sees all these names on it mm-hmm. and sees record labels on it too, like if I'm one of these like old fart congressmen, I'm going to think, oh, the labels and artists actually agree on something. This must be good policy. Like, let's do this. And they don't understand that there's a class of artists that this would be a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. And I think there needs to be that voice heard. If you're an indie artist, YouTube's one of the most valuable tools you have. It's worldwide distribution for your music and your videos to an audience of a billion people. Like the idea that something like this would have existed 20 years ago. Right. Like, hey, here's a platform that gets you an audience of a billion people for free. We would say that's insane. Mm-hmm. But now we have it, but we will not have it. Mark my words, if you get rid of this, the DMCA safe harbor. You know what's interesting? And, and I'm just thinking about this because I'm sure not many people will probably know about this. But isn't it? I find it a little funny and insulting. And it pisses me off now, actually, that I'm thinking about it. I'm sure no one's going to give these artists really that much grief. But yet Metallica got so much shit for the Napster thing. And if you think about it, this, is, this whole trying to get rid of the safe harbor provision has really bad uh, possible effects, you know, just like you know, globally. So not just independent artists, anyone who goes on YouTube, anyone who does all this stuff on the internet, which mm-hmm. is pretty much, I'm assuming, everyone now. Yeah, I mean, we, you, you can't listen to us. You can't listen to us without SoundCloud or, you know, iTunes, all that stuff. You know, Metallica got crap because they're like, oh, man, you're just trying to just get all this money. You guys are so rich and you don't have people downloading your money. And always as a, as a Metallica man, I've always had to defend it against idiots. You know, because it's like, hey, man, you know, the point of Napster wasn't the fact that they were it was just their music being ripped off. It was everyone's, including people out there who may be indie or uh, not established, who then can't make money if their song is taken away and downloaded for free. But yet everyone gave them crap. And now you've got all these big guys saying, hey, Congress, listen. We know everyone loves our stuff, and that's really who great. Are you, who are you channeling here? I don't. I, I don't know. Like it's like it's, it sounds like slimy lawyer guy. Like all those. Maybe I don't know. Right. Anyway, we we love the fans. <laughs> Let's just put it out there first. Love the fans. Can't do business without them. They're the reason we're here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, we don't like the fact that they can just look at stuff free online. We got to get rid of that. And any site that you know supports it, <laughs> they got to go. Oh, they are responsible for a lot of the content worldwide. I don't really care, man. I got my money. <laughs> That's what pisses me off, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's Napster was horrible for indie artists. It, it, it was. Well, I mean, it depends on like the like Napster itself, like a website that allowed people to freely exchange music without paying anybody. Yes. But yeah, what, there's no money. Right. But what you can't what, get paid. What Napster was was the beginning of the online distribution of music, which has been good for indie artists. Which the artists railed against, uh, funnily enough, back then, because again, when everyone was like, oh, this was so stupid, you guys, you're trying to just like destroy, you know, free sharing and everything like that. And all the, you know, everyone was like, no, 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 no. If they just went on board and said, hey, fine, let's take the technology and monetize it right now. Yes. yes. Everyone would have been ahead of the game. Yes. Unfortunately, you guys let the genie out of the bottle right there. Well, you know, that's what this is. Like, these artists are making the same mistakes that the labels did in 2004 when you had platforms like Napster happening. And, and you know, we said to labels, hey, labels, it sounds like there's a market for online distribution of music. We should be able to create a platform where you can, you know, 
buy, buy music and download it for you know money. And they went, no, people want to go to record stores and unwrap the shrink wrap off of their CDs. I mean, I do. I, I, I do. Well, like, you're like the only one, Dave. Uh, like Ryan, whenever you walk into a music store, like you're the only one there. Just apologize to Lars right now. <laughs> apologize. I will never. Apologize to Lars Ulrich right now. You know he's right. Okay. No, but, say it. Say the words. Lars. I'm not even sure what I'm apologizing for, but just to sorry, say Lars. Okay, good. Thank okay. you. So, but we're making the same mistakes now in 2016 where there's a new technology emerging and the old school artists are fighting against it. And it's not even new. Well, right. It's, it's here. It's here and it's not going anywhere. And if we, tr- the more we try to fight it in the law, the worse the industry is going to be for the indies. And that's why the indies need to fight this one. I can guarantee you. The next big copyright law coming down the pike, which is coming out very soon, maybe in the next session of Congress or the section after, there's going to be this next big copyright law. And Congress needs to hear from the indie artists like you because they're going to try to demolish the DMCA safe harbor. That's the goal. And if the only artists Congress is hearing from are Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. and you too, they're going to think they speak for everybody and they don't. In many areas, the interests of established artists and indie artists are very much aligned in like, you know, things like getting Spotify to pay everybody fairly. We're all on the same page. But this is one where you where you and the music's 1% are not on the same page, and you as indie artists need to speak out. You need to prevent this from happening. And also, I mean, are you seeing this really put out there a lot? Is this something you're hearing a lot, you know, in terms of like, do you see Taylor Swift, U2, and any other big names on there? I don't remember how many you read off. Do you see them actively saying, we got to get rid of this? Some do, some don't. Um, I, I don't see Taylor Swift saying a lot about this particular thing, although I mean, because maybe because she you know knows it's well, sort of radioactive. Because I think they they realize what's going on here because they they realize it's it's a crappy fight to really be in. Essentially, it is all about them as opposed to freaking Lars, you know, Metallica and the other artists out there who are like, hey guys, look at this, look at look at what's going on over here. Your art can be stolen away from you in the pro- in the process of recording. By the way, people always forget that song. The songs were taken. In the middle of the recording. I've never recorded a song myself, Ryan. I don't think you have either. I think I would be kind of pissed off if I was putting my heart and soul and love and labor and money into recording something and someone takes it away before I even finish it and puts it out there in the world. That would piss me off. Okay. Ryan, apologize again. Why are you trying to take this very important issue and turning it into, you know, me I'm not. trying to tell you that Metallica wasn't wrong for trying to shut down Napster? Because people need to remember that. Because some people are kind of like, oh, man, you remember Napster? I'm like, screw you. You don't even realize what the hell that was about. Get, if you're going to get pissed off at them, make sure you burn your Taylor Swift CDs and uh, Justin Bieber CDs. Um, that's right. You said he's not part of it. But just on general principle. <laughs> anyway, educate yourself on the DMCA, all right? Because it's going to affect you if this thing goes away. If the safe harbor, safe harbor goes away, it's going to affect right. all of us. And it's not going to be good times. It's not going to be good times. It's not going to be good times. Um, George Howard coming up next. Thanks for listening to the Break the Business Podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time. My new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. Thanks very much for your support.
Welcome back to the Break the Business podcast. He is a longtime music industry veteran and a professor of music business and management at the Berklee College of Music. He is also the co-founder of the music distribution service TuneCore. His latest project is serving on the working group of the Open Music Initiative, an organization that aims to make it easier for music owners to be identified and properly compensated for their works. You can find out more about the Open Music Initiative by visiting open-music.org. Ladies and gentlemen, George Howard is on the Break the Business this podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Ryan. It's, it's, it's nice to be here. Oh, glad to hear it. Um, it's cool to have you on. Um, I, I don't know if we've ever had somebody quite so experienced with such a... I think you definitely have the best business resume of any guest we've had on this show, so I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, can you tell the folks a little bit about your background? Yeah, that's, that's kind of you to say. It's been a, a, a wide, winding sort of road. <laughs> uh, the, 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 you know, I look back on it, it's definitely not a, not a straight line. Um, sure. At the at the end of the day, I'm a guitar player. I started as a guitar player, and I have a feeling that's how how I'll end up. But um, um, I think that uh, I think I've realized at a certain point that that my my purpose on this earth is to help. Uh, help artists of all stripes um, sort of create sustainable careers on their own terms. And, and I look at, I look at um, the things I've worked on and had the pleasure to work on over the years, and, and kind of everything's a byproduct of that. Um, and that includes uh, starting my first little indie label when I was in college, and um, that label eventually being uh, sort of acquired by, by a larger indie label, that that label was then bought by a guy named Chris Blackwell, who who was the founder of Island Records and had signed Bob Marley and U2 and others. And I was promoted up to to run that label at a at a probably a too too young of an age, um, but <laughs> gave it gave it my best. Um, and and that that label was signed. That label was called Rico Disc, and it was signed to uh, sorry uh, sold to Warner Music Group in about 2004. Um, I then, yeah, I was lucky enough to work with Jeff Price um, and get TuneCore off the ground, which has become, a, a, I think, a pretty meaningful independent, uh, as you say, distributor. Um, currently, uh, along the way, I, I, I started a, uh, a sort of management and advising company, um, managed artists like Carly Simon and uh, Mark Isham, um, as well as sort of diversified out and, and started helping companies um, outside of the, the music space with their uh, sort of strategy and branding and, uh, you know, technology needs. Um, and uh, then recently co-founded a company called Music Audience Exchange uh, with my partner Nathan Hanks uh, based down in Dallas uh, with the goal of, of kind of doing what we did with TuneCore, um, but but creating efficiencies in, in the branding and radio space. Um, and that's been really, really exciting. And as I say, when I when I look back through it all, there's these, these sort of threads um, and consistent with those threads, I think maybe the most important thing that I do is is teach. Um, so I'm lucky enough to teach uh, copyright law and, and entrepreneurship and a few other courses at the Berkeley College of Music. And um, I, I tend my bias tends to be towards sort of innovative technology. That's just just a very natural state for me, um, uh, where I have interests. And um, so about two years or so ago, I got very interested in the in the Bitcoin blockchain and wanted to understand it better. I, I have a column for Forbes, which kind of allows me to explore interests and talk to people far smarter than I. So I, I've, I've uh, dove pretty deep down the the blockchain tech. 
uh, rabbit hole, and and that sort of circled around to uh, to open music. Um, and lastly, I, I am working on a project called Music 2020 with uh, with a gentleman named Scott Kirby, and that's that's to raise the discourse around what what a better vision of, of music should be for for all constituents. So. You know, it's it's all part of this all part of this mosaic, but it, it does sort of track towards helping artists sort of create sustainable careers on their own terms. So what you're saying is you're kind of new to the game and you're trying to build your experience. Got it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, uh, your your tech background in particular uh, makes me particularly intrigued to talk to you about this open music initiative. I'm sure, sure. you can have great insight for us. We've spoken sure. a bit on this show about the OMI. This is a new project that aims to make it easier for music owners to be identified and compensated for their work. And it looks like uh, there are a lot of big players involved in this initiative, including major labels, YouTube, MIT, Harry Fox Agency, SoundCloud. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about the open music initiative and how it intends to solve this problem of identifying and compensating uh, music owners? Sure, though I don't. I don't. I, I think that's a slight mischaracterization about what the what the purpose is. Um, you know, the Open Music Initiative is is um, intends to ask ask questions and 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 look at protocols and look at technologies and 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 really do what what um, academic institutions should do, which is which is try to shine lights on on thought leaders and and really. Um, raise the level of discourse around around what it might mean to uh, to to use these new technologies and inclusive of but not not limited to you know uh, some sort of standard ledger. I think I think that that gets gets maybe too much attention um, in the in the overall discourse around around uh, blockchain tech. Um, so uh, to to your initial point. Um, yeah, Panos Panay is the is the, he runs the Institute of Creative Entrepreneurship at at Berkeley, and um, he, along with uh, Alan Bagfried, um, had had worked uh, on Rethink Music, um, which has now sort of segued. It's not a straight line, but is is certainly uh, was somewhat of the pathway to this Open Music Initiative, um, and and to Panos is just unbelievable credit. And Aponis is an entrepreneur himself, which I think explains an awful lot of the success um, that he's he's been able to create around this initiative in terms of getting, as you mentioned, this incredibly disparate um, but impressive list of, of people to at least join the conversation around around the OMI. Um, um, but but I, I do want to be clear, it's not the, the the goal is not simply okay. Let's figure out what the what the the standards or the or, you know for one unified ledger might be. Well, uh, forgive me. So no, it's okay. Well, I mean, the only reason I ask is because I would say, to the extent that this initiative is something where we're aspiring to have a conversation, bring yeah. people to the table. Um, I imagine artists. I mean, you know, and granted, you know. Where I, where you know, I, I sort of, I saw it as ensuring proper compensation for artists because that, that's what's listed here on the description on the website. Yeah, no, no, no. I, but, I don't mean to say that you're, you're off base. I just, I think that it's, it's, it's not just limited to that. That's all I was trying oh, to certainly. say. Oh, certainly. Oh, yeah. Okay. I imagine there's a broader. Th I mean, correct. And correct. I, I would say, t I mean, I, I only sort of concern myself with, you know, the tangible something I can grab onto aspect of this because I think that's something that artists are wondering you know what yes what what, yes. Are, what are we getting out of this yes you know yes. concretely and so yes. 
That's the right question, and maybe I misunderstood the, the your your opening statement. So, concretely, you know, artists artists are in either depending on how what, how you look at it, um, the best the best position they've ever been in, or the worst position, right? Um, <laughs> yes. So, um, it, you know, on one hand, an artist has at least the potential to to take control of their career um, from sort of soup to nuts. And, and not be reliant really upon upon anyone. Um, you know, you can track it down all the way from making the record to distributing the record to promoting the record using technology and, and a sort of, you, you know, the, the overwrought phrase at this point, sort of disintermediation, right? Getting rid of the various stakeholders that, that stood between an artist and a fan, whether that was a label, distributor, whatever. Um, and, and so on one hand, that, that that's really, really great. Um, of course, the, the downside of that is, well, now an artist has to not only be creative, but they also have to sort of be the business person. And also, you know, th- th- there's a sort of solitary element around that approach, which is, is, is A, hard and B, um, B, you know, kind of a, I'm not sure what the right word is, but it can be, I don't want to say, um, it, it, it can, it can lack lack the inputs that, that you know, I ran labels and, and labels are often criticized, but, but they do and can bring value in terms of shaping and perspective and everything else. And so when you're constantly doing it yourself, it's, it's, it's really, it's very, very challenging. So you have on one hand, yeah, I can, I can do it. I don't need a label. On the other hand, it's like, oh, I have to do it all myself. And then compound that with the fact that you've got, you know, sort of a race to the bottom in terms of what customers are, are desiring to pay for music, which is essentially zero, um, and the fact that anybody with a laptop and, and, a, and a guitar can can release a record, and it's it's very very hard for artists to a stand out and b stand out enough to make money. So looking at those problems through a lens of technology and registries, you know, blockchain or, or otherwise, is, is certainly at, at the core of, of what we're trying to talk about. And the stakeholders that you mentioned all have that as an interest. You know what I mean? Like that that's sort of a galvanizing thing that that irrespective of how they how they approach it, all of the people that you mentioned have as an input an artist. And you know, so so trying to figure out how we do this better is is certainly a gesture worth worth endeavoring. Um yeah. And you know what you know and, and and sort and there's a big conversation to be had and whatever sort of concrete products come from that conversation um are going it sounds like they're going to have to be ambitious in nature to be able to solve the problems that you just discussed and you know there are versions of this and i hate to boil it down to a ledger as you said um because you know this does seem more ambitious than or i shouldn't say ambitious because that's already plenty ambitious but more global than just that but in terms of just creating some kind of ledger to identify rights holders and make sure they're efficiently compensated that's not the first time that's been attempted and so far no one's really been able to figure out how to do it and so what do you think the omi is going to be able to do to to be able to accomplish where others have not been able to accomplish this and maybe have there been some mistakes that have been done in the past that maybe your group is can learn from Oh yeah, sure. I mean, um, mistakes. I mean, there there have been really good faith efforts. Um, whether it was the you know the global rights database, etc. Um, you know, they've broken down um, for a variety of reasons, and it really doesn't matter why. Um, we can learn from those um, you know perspectives. Um, if you look at the members of the T of the OMI, the steering group, you have people like Dan Harpel on there who who understand at its core, 
uh, sort of interoperability between machines and how they can better talk to each other. And and I think that that's, I don't, I don't want to speak for the, for the entire, entire group. Right. But, but certainly one of the goals is to examine a, why those, why those sort of, um, windmills that were tilted at in terms of a global rights database, et cetera, did, did break down. What were the problems and how do we, how do we address those? I mean, again, that's what, that's what academic institutions do. How, how to address that through a lens of entrepreneurship and various stakeholders is, is a very challenging thing. The lab that's coming up in, 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 in July um, is, is one of the ways in which you can look at that. And, and one of the things that I think is so interesting and that, that I'm very proud that the OMI is looking at is, well, how are other, other at least seemingly unrelated industries addressing these types of challenges, right? The, the music industry sometimes gets caught and, and I think it's somewhat of a mischaracterization because it's too easy, but frequently the music industry is perceived as being very sort of verticalized and just saying, look, we do things our way and we're, we're you know, we're not really looking to other industries. And, and I don't, I can't really, I don't think that's so true anymore. I think it may have been true for a while. Um, but, but now exploring how, whether it's, you know, food or design or any number of, of industries that are at best sort of orthogonal um, through this sort of lens of this, of this group is, is going to help us guide the way, but you, you've got some very, very smart and accomplished people with respect to ledgers, databases, interoperability, and that's where I come down. And I don't think any of the other people on the committee would would be surprised for me when I say that I believe that transactions lead and that that registrations follow those. And I think you know, and again, this is George talking, not not the OMI. Oh no, um, we totally want you to speak for the entire OMI. Uh, whatever you say is is gospel. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're joking, right? Of course, so, very uh, much so. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I'm not speaking for the OMI here, though I, I brought this to the OMI, you know, and, and this will be, you know, either the, you know, this will be a recursive thing until they tell me to stop, and in which case then, then I'm not sure what value I bring. But um, it, it's, it's, there has, I think too often there's been this idea of we're going to create some sort of perfect minimum viable data set or whatever, and at that point, machines will be able to go out and talk to each other, and, and we'll have systems, and interoperability. And, and I, I am a big believer that, yeah, you, you need somewhere to start, and we can call that a, a minimum viable data or otherwise, but you have to prioritize actual transactions. The problem with that approach is that, that the, the bigger rights holders are very, very concerned about, well, as they should be, how do I possibly test this out? How do I test it out from the standpoint when I've got thousands and thousands of copyrights and fiduciary responsibilities and everything else? And, and my, again, my bias on the technology side is, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I do know that there are lots of artists these days that are unencumbered and unfettered by by various sort of rights institutions and can play in a sandbox that, that, that allows us to start getting some transactions and whether that has to happen um, in VR or in industries that are just sort of related to music or in music itself. Um, I'm, I'm indifferent to, you know what I mean? I, I, I sort of use the analogy increasingly of um, in, in the gold rush era, it wasn't the gold miners who got rich. It was the people who sold them the, the picks and the shovels. I believe that, that blockchain tech, whether it's the Bitcoin blockchain or any, any, any other type of sort of related technology like that, is, are, are the picks and shovels. 
neither I nor anyone, anybody that tells you they do is just lying, knows which which technologies, which companies, which practices are going to emerge as the, as the quote-unquote right ones or dominant ones. So so my, George Howard's belief, and, and as, a, as I think a contributor to the OMI, um, at least I'm going to make this voice heard, is that, that we want to look at a range of different ways in which that might occur all around, and this is me speaking for the OMI. All with the all with the all with the underpinnings that there must be a certain sense of openness, right? Now you can define that as you want. You can define that as as sort of a a, a you know open source type approach, or um, and, and I think that needs to be defined. But but again, as an academic institution, we're, we're not going to build our own blockchain. You know, it, it's more. It's more. How can we? How can we look at the people that are doing that and and, and raise the discourse? See, now, I like that you brought openness to mind because I think it's a pretty good segue to where I want to go next. Here, uh, a big focus of this podcast is, and pretty much the primary focus of this podcast is to help independent musicians move their careers forward. And so, I kind of want to turn our focus to that group. Yeah, it's often the case that emerging initiatives in the music industry either tend to benefit or at least are perceived to tend to benefit the big players in the music industry over indie artists. You know, that perception exists with something like Spotify. Like it's, you know, it, that, mm, that comes yes, to mind yes, there. Yes, 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 and, yes. And so now I know that OMI is still in its preliminary stages, but has there been any discussion on how this initiative might be taking steps to try to make sure that all content creators and owners are treated equally and that the Big players are not privileged, and does the openness that you discussed perhaps play a role there? That's a complicated question. Um, <laughs> so again, go, going back to my background, my my bias is at the sort of early stages of any type of market, whether that's technology or artistry or whatever. I think that's where actual innovation happens. That that's just where where my interest lies. Um, certainly TuneCore and Music Audience Exchange, much of my work has been really, really driven by independent in the truest sense of the word, not not independent as it's defined as counter to a major label, but but really someone that is in complete control of their destiny. I, I also teach, I don't know how many hundreds of students every year, um, and, and certainly while I understand and respect it, the, the, the role of major labels, um, my bias is really one of you, you need to figure out how to how to sort of take care of yourselves, even if you do desire to to get signed to a major label. And there's certainly a, a time and a place for that, um, because if you if you go at it from that vector, at least you have some choices rather than just sort of saying, look, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and just you know make music and wait for that that, you know, label to sort of anoint me. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I mean, that's just ingrained, I think, into certainly into my DNA and many, many others on the, in the OMI, but you, you also have, you know, major labels in the OMI and that's, that's the brilliance of it. And again, I go back to Pana somehow pulling that together. So, um, your question's a, a good one, but it's also sort of a trap, right? I mean, in the sense that, that, that are we prioritizing, indie labels and then sort of positioning or independent artists as, as sort of a, a adverse to, to major labels? Absolutely not. You know, um, and, and Spotify and those others, you can certainly look at, at it from so many different vantage points in terms of, I, I think where, where I go down is 
we don't really know at this point what what fair is. You hear that a lot. You know, what what is fair for an independent artist? What is fair for a Spotify or whatever? So much of it depends on 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 the lens of well what what encumbrances are placed on this, whether that's governmental, um, you know, sort of mandates in terms of royalty rates or, or consent decrees or whatever. Um, so it, it, it's a it's a complicated and intellectual question. And I know I'm going down a path that, that, that you know, it's probably not easy bite size or whatever, but I, I sort of refuse to just sort of sum it up from like majors are bad or indies are good or whatever. I'm much more interested in in artists being able to understand the sort of rules of engagement here and make choices that are that are educated because there are times when when Spotify may be the best thing in the world for an independent artist. Do I wish we could get clarity around precisely what they're paying if they are in fact you know doing the right things with respect to you know their business practices etc. Yeah, but you know that that's where we've got to we've got to get. But but the artists also have to understand their rights. They have to understand copyright. They you know there's a whole spectrum of knowledge that that the, the burden falls on all participants at this point. Well, uh, it sounds like, and, and and again, I you know, I, I asked for a very detailed, long answer there because that is a di- it. It, well, well, in the sense that that is a difficult question to answer when this is kind of in a preliminary stage. Like I completely get that, and that was actually a great answer. Um, and it, it, it's sort of funny, right? Because this, you know, you can't, you know, something like this does not work without the buy-in of major stakeholders, and you can't do a major music industry initiative without major labels. And I, I would just think if I'm putting my indie artist hat on, when I see the major labels sitting at the table, it makes me wonder, you know, how, you know, what can there be protections in place to make sure that those particular people at the table don't, you know, put things in place to make sure they get to eat first? I mean, I get you have to have the major labels for it to work, but um, I think that's going to be a challenge for the OMI going forward is making sure that all these stakeholders are managed so that, you know, all rights holders can be, you know, treated fairly. And I get that that's very, a tough word to kind of define as you noted, but um, I think it could be a challenge. It, it, it's, it, you're right. It, it, it is a challenge. It is maybe the challenge. Um, and I don't, I don't know necessarily that, that, that that is the, the job of the OMI. It may be a responsibility of the OMI, right? But, but I keep going back to this idea that, that we have to present um, a, a, a somewhat objective viewpoint that aligns with our values, okay, and, and, and be clear about our values of, of, of openness, of transparency, et cetera. Not all businesses – so it, it, when you asked about indie artists, and, and, and I'm an educator and an advocate for, for indie artists. Indie artists have never, never had more information available to them about not only the sort of fundamentals of, of music business sort of practices from copyright law to, to marketing or to whatever. Um, they need to avail themselves of those things. I, 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 you know, and, and, and on the flip side, um, any institution, I don't care if you're an independent label with one person or, or the world's biggest label, you have to understand, as I said earlier, that your, your input, your, your whatever is, is a precious, a precious thing. Right. And, and too often it gets commoditized. And, and that's really what's happened, in my opinion, over the past you know, X number of years, where, where we've, we've just commoditized 
are to to it, it being lumped into this idea of user generated content that is that is really really a fine line between that and and, and just a photo that's shared on Instagram or a, a video uploaded on YouTube or whatever that that is really just meant to drive subscribers and and that's you know there there's a difference when it comes to art you know we're not we're not selling shoes i'm sure there's some cobblers out there that would say that they are artists but um <laughs> how dare but, you besmirch my shoe art <laughs> and there are some um but but so to me there's a higher level of responsibility now we can choose to not do that we could we can certainly as a as a you know we can choose to say yeah i don't care i'm just going to you know i'm i'm going to raise shareholder value um and, and and that's fine but you have to think that through to the long term and, and I, I'd like to think that the OMI, in some respects, is trying to take a longer-term view um, and be a little bit less reactionary um, in, in what are the long-term consequences of, of siloed databases that do not interoperate, right? That, that where I envision a future where, where, you know, through blockchain tech, smart contracts, et cetera, I, as an independent artist, can create a work can can ascribe that work to some type of, of ledger blockchain. And we should be careful about that, right? I mean, you know, ledgers, a ledger, a database, whatever. There's a dyna- di- dynamic element to blockchain tech that, that, that changes it, that allows for it to not just be a ledger. And again, that's why I go back to transactions. So, so I ascribe my rights. I make them visible, which I think you're a lawyer, which does not obviate I rule think so of, too. <laughs> does not obviate rule of law, right? I mean, we're still going to have to honor copyright. We, we should assume that copyright's not going to fundamentally change, right? But I ascribe these rights out there and essentially um, look for RFPs, requests for purchases, in the sense of on, on on the other side of the table, all what I believe to be will be just myriad and myriad of users um, that in, in, in ways that we we can't yet conceive of. I mean, people point to VR, AR, Internet of Things or whatever, but it's it's pervasive that, that are looking for music for, to suit their needs and are willing to pay or to provide some kind of benefit, whether it's financial or promotion. And, and it may be at very, very little fractional amounts. But if you do allow for those parties to intersect through machines talking to each other, machine-readable smart contracts, all of a sudden you've got a very different music industry. It doesn't necessarily obviate the, the those who have their own proprietary databases right now, whether the ASCAP, BMI, or catalogs or whatever, it does, as with any technology, force them to reevaluate and figure out how they add value to that equation. And, and I believe that they can. I don't, I don't see this as binary. I don't see you know, labels being pushed away because of blockchain technology any more than I see artists. But, but we all have to sort of, I forget which person said this, but we all have to sort of innovate or die. And, and that means continuing to, to redefine our value proposition. And so that's, that, the, everybody has the same challenge there. Mm-hmm. Academics do, artists do, Spotify does, you, you know what I mean? So I, I guess that's why I sort of get, I get a little bit, um, I get a little bit, uh, what's the word, um, defensive about, well, What's fair, and, and it, shouldn't we shouldn't we put the, the the artist, the independent artist first? And and to me, it's it's I'm I'm agnostic. You know, we, we need to we need to create systems that, that allow for efficiencies, and and only in that way do do then. But but uh, agnostic, I'm agnostic in terms of how those systems are created. But as I said earlier, 
we are dealing with a precious commodity that artists create, and we can't lose track of it. And there are certainly a lot of question marks to be had in, in you know, how those you know stakeholders are going to be navigated, and, and I completely get that. And to the OMI's credit, one of the things that I think you guys are doing well right from the beginning, and I think is going to help in this regard, is you are actively soliciting the contributions of everyone. Your website has ways yes. for everybody to join, and you it's want people mean. to be part of the conversation. Yes. So, yes. um. So for if there are people listening out there who want to get involved and help out um, with the OMI, how can they reach out and what sort of things can they do for the initiative? Well, look, they, currently they should come to the site um, and, and there will be a series of, of events. And I'm sure you can list the URL uh, on, on your on your site. Um, and and um, there will be a series of events. If, if anybody, if, if you don't listen, it's open-music.org. Um, a series of events, as we say, transparency is sort of at our core. So getting getting those events out there um, in the sense that people can see what's going on, know what's going on, distribute it out there in a way that people can feed can give feedback. And and yeah, I mean, look, reach out. Um, this is this is an early initiative with a big, hairy, audacious goal, <laughs> um, and. Um, you know, I, we might fail. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, there's no there's no guarantees in this. As I say, I, I think that I think the vision is right. I think Panos has done, you know, an amazing job in terms of, as you noted, it's getting an awful lot of disparate stakeholders on there. And and now the hard part becomes, well, what what exactly are we going to do, and how are we going to ascribe benefit? I think that 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 providing benefit in something as complex as this. Maybe just clarity may just be you know showing things and and, and talking through things um, and, and and providing context. Um, we'll see. Yeah, uh, uh, George, you've been super knowledgeable, super honest. This has been a treat having you on. And before we let you go, I would be remiss in not taking advantage of having a music business professor here who's worked with so many artists, um, and just ask you uh, for all the listeners out there: Do you have any? you know, last parting tips that you can share with the indie artists that are listening to help them move their careers forward? I think that, I think fundamentally, um, the, the people, artists need to understand, understand that their assets are, are their copyrights. They need to understand how, um, how, how to, how to protect and, and increase their value, right? Um, and the two go hand in hand. And as we move, you know, not move, as we've moved to a, a, a industry where there's no, it's no longer value through, through pre-recorded sale, pre-recorded music, um, streaming and, and therefore public performance rights and those types of things become very important. And so that's, that's the sort of academic answer. And, and, Man, twenty years or so trying to get artists to care about that. I, I I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm just you know treading water. But but I do. I can't. I, I always feel like with my students, you, you you have to understand your public performance rights and, and understand where the money's flowing. Um, but on on a less sort of academic side, test things, try things. Right? There, there there's a good book. It's it's sort of dated at this point and it's over overused. But but the Lean Startup by by Eric Reese. Um, or the innovators method um, that came out of Clayton Christensen's group um, are both are both really great books that I don't know that they ever mention the music business, but they they preach a philosophy of come up with a thesis that 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 you can test and that that thesis for a musician should be am I making music that that's remarkable and by remarkable I mean that, that people will talk about a 
and B, am I putting it in front of people predisposed to care? Right, because you can make you can make music that that is arguably great, but if you put it in front of the wrong people, no one will care. And you can you can put music in front of music lovers, but if the music isn't great, no one will 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 care either. So it's those two things together, and in the the that's the science of it. The art of it is testing it. Like how, how do you do that? And I think that technology, as well as playing in front of people, does allow for that. Does allow for you to test those things because only when you do that, only when you do something that's truly remarkable that people will talk about. And and only when you put it in front of people predisposed to care, do you have that magical thing that happens where you shift the burden of promotion from the band. It's no longer the band saying, hey, everybody, listen to our new song, to their fans, to their fans telling their friends. And and I've seen it, you know, not not a ton of times in my in my career. But when you do see it, it's magic. When you see it, when when some artist makes something that the listener cannot help but tell someone else about off off things go and and it, it and, and, and that will always happen that that happens irrespective of, of how we sell music how we consume it etc because that that then takes music to that place where it becomes a reflection of our internal values and 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 that that's why we get up in the morning and so focusing on those two things and and, and creating a set of tests to try that and try it in different ways and try it fast and try it low cost. Um, that that's the best advice I can give artists. That was glorious. <laughs> there, there's there's got there's a bunch of people listening right now that are already logging on to try to audit your class, however possible. Um, uh, pr- professor, it was a treat. This was awesome. I'd love to have you on again soon. Sure. Thanks so much. All right, we'll be right back on the Break the Business Podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. If you like the show, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to reach out to us, shoot us an email at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Our thanks to Professor George Howard for joining us in the previous segment. You can find out more about the Open Music Initiative by visiting open-music.org. I think this is a very important movement that as many artists as possible need to be a part of, so I would advise going to that website and joining it. And even as I say this, Dave, Mm -hmm. I feel a little bad because I I feel like the first two segments have been just us giving them homework. Like... In the previous segment, it's join the Open Music Initiative. Before that, it's fight against the changes to DMCA safe harbor laws. Like, mm-hmm. just I'm just we're, we're just giving them chores. Like, I feel like the listeners are going to be mad at us. Like, we're putting them to work. Well, but you know, hey man, it's the 21st century. It's 2016. Actually, I should have made a joke. It's like 1999. Damn it. Anyway, <laughs> um, you got to go out there and be active. I think current events in the world and the country have shown you need to be active. You need to be engaged. You need to know what's going on in case others make decisions for you that you don't like and affect you badly. So be engaged and be educated. Part of being an indie artist, what we talk about is, you know, being your own business, running your own operation, which means protecting your business and protecting it against changes in law that can hurt your business. Exactly. As you would have to do if you were one of these big business owners. So you need to be active. You need to be aware of the stuff that's going on. And I just realized I'm looking at the show notes here for the next story. And this Mm -hmm. is also kind of like a, you know, become socially activist thing. What is up with our show today? I don't know. I don't know, man. But again, because this is, well, this was scary thing. I saw this in uh, Variety on Twitter. 
and we, we kind of looked it up. So, Ryan. Yeah. Have you ever been to a concert? Yes, of course. Have you been to a concert recently? Yeah. That's funny, because actually, you almost have to be like, yeah, do it. I, I, I go to a lot of shows. I'm not sure about you. Anyway. I, I, tend, I mean, I go to different shows. Like, you do, like, big stadium arena rock shows. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I tend to go to, like, smaller venues. You know, listen to, like, acoustic music, singer-songwriters. But yes, I've been to, I've been to concerts. You support indie artists? That's weird. <laughs> I know, shocker, right? Um. Anyway, <laughs> so you know how in the old days people had a lighter to show their support, of course, and there was a lighter with a light, a flame. Yeah. Nowadays, people have their phones, right? In- indeed. And you notice now, actually, they're recording everything they see in front of them on the phone. Looking at the concert even through the phone, which I don't understand. I don't know. Like that drives me crazy. Why don't you use your eye cameras, your eyes, mm-hmm. those cameras that record and put in your brain? Use that, the iPhone of your head. <laughs> you know, so you it's a lot. You see this a lot now. All, all you you see pictures and videos. You see screens illuminated all over the place, recording the show, recording the artists, recording the music. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently those artists don't like that is that right they have an issue with all that recording going on and then it can be put on youtube and you're calling back to the first segment (laughs) well apparently ryan apple has heard the complaints of these fine folks and got and really put their brains (laughs) to work Although the way technology is, I'm not sure how much it is, but apparently Ryan, they filed some patents. Yes, indeed. In order to actually stop people from recording at a show ah, yes. to you're, disable the functionality of the phone. Yes, uh, you're talking about on June 28th, uh, they put out, a, they got, a, a, Apple got a patent approved uh, that creates an infrared system that can actually make your iPhone disable its own video recording functions when you're at concert venues. Um, so basically the way it would work is like you try to recording and the infrared signal goes into your phone, disables your recording, then all you see on your screen is recording disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm no, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy theory crazy person, mm-hmm. but oh my God. <laughs> oh no, it's a frightening application that people rightly are kind of like, well, you know, if you take out just the, well, hey, wait a minute, that's really effed up that I can't take a picture or whatever. I can't even, you know, and again, I don't, we don't have, I don't have the tech readout in front of me, but... You know, does that also then mean you can't even just take a picture of yourself enjoying? You can't take a picture of you with your buddies, yeah. whatever. Take a selfie at the concert. Yeah, like hey, hey, we're having fun here, but it, they're they're apparently this could give artists or at venues a way to disable. And granted, it's just the iPhone. My God, wouldn't it be amazing if they somehow found a way to disable Samsung as well in cross promotional hell? Um, <laughs> you know. Basically saying, nope, we're turning it off. That way you cannot possibly record or then steal, put up, misuse the property and copyright, you know, of the artist. And and I'll say this. I if there if there's one thing one guy I hate it at the concert, it's record the whole concert guy. Oh yeah, that, screw that guy. He's an idiot. Yeah, because he always sits in front of me and he parks his damn not even like the little iPhone, like the iPhone twelve that's like the size of a freaking cereal box. So an iPad, just look whatever it is. Like he, he's got the giant ass device, and he'll stick it like hold it right over his head, right in front of me, and I can't see any of the damn show. I mm-hmm. get that this is a problem. This seems like a really horrifying way to solve it. I 
I mean, the, like, how can it be legal? Like that, that somebody else can go into your phone and disable your own phone's technology. Good Lord. And also then the applications outside of it are, are horrifying. Oh my God. Yeah. No, see, I, I'm not as concerned about this being used at a concert as I am being, it being used by a police department. Yeah. To tra- tramp on civil liberties. Oh, it, it, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Like, Oh, it's a, it's going to be stick time for this subject. Let's go ahead and just turn the infrared cameras on so that we can uh, get to whooping. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, you're, oh yeah. Oh Yeah. Oh my God, you're right. That's like, what I'm afraid a of. Unit that basically, wow. Like when 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 they know it's time to you know you know go into dirty cop time, just you know flick the switch on infrared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine certain certain police departments in the country in certain areas probably being like, ha ha, ha back to the good old days. And <laughs> see. <laughs> I mean, if Congress wants to get on their ass and do something, like, how about spend less time destroying YouTube, mm-hmm. like we talked about in the first segment, and more time keeping people from going into our iPhones and changing the settings? Granted, if you watch uh, if you watch the uh, news magazine show Vice on HBO, you already probably know that anyone actually can just go into like an electronic store or go online. Because electronic stores these days are kind of n- not exactly in fashion. And actually buy gear that allows you to spy on people's phones. What? And hack in. What? Oh, yeah. This is a thing? Oh, yeah. It's not just the NSA. Hi, NSA. Um, it, it, it's, it can be anyone, and you can access anyone's phone. You can turn on their cameras. What? You can hear, turn on the microphone when they're not talking on it, so you can hear the ambient noise. You can hear who people are talking to. You can hear what they're saying. There's a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, the only way to disable it is to crack open your phone, remove the, the sort of the, the board, the chip that controls the two cameras. So two of the things and take out the microphone. And then basically the phone is only a phone and you need to have your earbuds plugged into the phone for that for that mic. Otherwise, the phone is dead. This is a thing people can do. Oh, yeah. That's not funny. No, this is the 21st century. It's actually quite horrible sometimes. See, you had another chance to do your, you know, it's the oh, 90s yeah. God joke. damn it, you're right. Ah, it's 1999, <laughs> man. It's, it's the 90s, man. Things are different, happen. okay, man? But that sucks. Yes. Like, oh, my God. Like, I'm going to have to buy, like, one of those Nokia brick phones now because I just said I wasn't one of those tinfoil hat people, but you're going to turn me into one of these tinfoil hat people. I kind of like that idea of making you go crazy. Anyway, all but, right. Yeah, but I, I mean, he's devil's advocate. That guy that records the show is a douchebag. I'm agreed. I'm with you on that. It's and like, y- y- that's why I always want to make sure I get to the front so no one's in front of me. Well, how about a sign that says, like, don't hold, you know, you, if you're going to record, I mean, first of all, you can just have no recording, just put that sign up. But, you know, if you record and hold it over your head, we're going to throw you out of the concert. I guess. And also, I mean, well, I guess, you know, the artists saying they're getting tired of seeing phones everywhere. One, I guess, is it really that noticeable? And two, it's like, okay, I, mean, I don't know, whatever. So they're, they're, they're recording your concert. Do you think, well, I guess things are getting better these days, quality wise. But I don't think they're going to put out, a, no one's going to sell a concert DVD out of the trunk of their car right. from their, their place, you know, what? in section 308. I, I mean, are they really concerned about it taking money out of pockets? Have you ever wanted to watch somebody else's recording of a concert like you know the sound quality is gonna be terrible you know the visual is gonna be terrible like even if you're recording on one of these like 4k iphone cameras like once the stage lights get in there and the distance and you know all the other things that are going to interfere like it's gonna look like crap and 
I bet that 99.98% of the concert films that are shot by people in the crowd are never viewed again, including by the person who just videotaped it. Yeah, and actually, it's kind of funny because I've actually learned over the last few years, I really don't need to record stuff that much anymore. I used to kind of a bit but here and there. But then you're right. You listen back and it's kind of like, what is that song? Oh, even you don't even know because like the wall of sound that's hitting you in a live show isn't really great for the tiny mic on your phone. That's what I'm saying. So like, yeah. you know, but again, is, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. Right. This is a minor problem that we all agree is a problem that's trying to be solved with some crap that's straight out of like 1984. Yeah, I mean, man. That's really scary. Yeah. All right. I think the message of today's show is be afraid <laughs> and very afraid. Why aren't you afraid? Who's that guy behind you? That guy, he's looking at you weird. And right. And be active. So, so just to make I your just list. threw you off of that. You had no idea where to go with I that. I had no idea where to that go. That was with so that. funny. But, but you like literally had like couldn't follow me. That's so weird. Come on. What that I've been friends for that, twenty years. I, you can't just I was follow supposed my to be the paranoid guy too. Yeah, you're supposed to like get on the rift train. Sorry. Come on, rift train's leaving the station. Woo woo. I'm actually a little mad about something. Okay, all right. So I was no, I was not on the rift train. I was panicking. Yes. And now I moved to mad. And here's why I'm mad. Why are you mad? Twenty four seven Wall Street has uh -huh. put out a list okay. of the 50 worst cities to live in the United States. And Ooh. believe me, America is a great country, but there are plenty of freaking wastelands here. Like I know like <laughs> I know today is supposed to be us celebrating America because it's 4th of July weekend, but there are plenty of cities here that suck. Yeah. But apparently, according to 24/7 Wall Street, right? The city that sucks the most, right? And apparently sucks worse than Detroit, which right? is number 2 on this list. Uh-huh. Miami we're number one. We're number one. We're number one. Yeah. All right, 305. Why does that make you mad? Why does that make me mad? You haven't missed your deep. Sorry, sorry. The studio audience doesn't quite know what to do there. Hey, thanks for pointing out my my, my fail at this in the soundboard. You've That's had great. a weird last two minutes. <laughs> Not my best work. Continue. That's now. And, you know, I'm coming at this with some bias because I've lived here my whole life. Right. And I love this city very much. Right. I acknowledge that we got problems. Uh-huh. We don't have Detroit problems. You so, okay, like, so you don't think Miami's the worst city in the world? No, I don't. Or, 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 not, not, not the world. It's the worst city in the United States. No, it's it has many of the problems that many big cities do. Mm-hmm. But worse than freaking Detroit, like, okay. honestly, what I think this is, this uh -huh. is clickbait. Because if you make a list of the 50 worst cities in Detroit's on top, yawn. You make it Miami, and all of a sudden, this is getting posted all over Facebook, and you have a bunch of butthurt Miamians like me that are like, what the hell? So, like, that's what this is. That's what okay. this is. All right. Um, can I say something? Yeah, of course. I agree with the list. C come on. This place sucks. Sucks? Sucks. Like, Detroit sucks? It's a shithole, man. A shithole? Yeah. Miami is terrible. With our beaches and our sunshine and our complete lack of state income tax. The beaches? First of all, you do you do the beaches, like Miami Beach, don't go there. It's just a bunch of friggin' douchebag tourists that go there. I've been known to go there once every five years, and I've enjoyed it every time. You have that little tiny fedora, right? <laughs> okay, just making sure. Um well, so, that's, anyway, um, no, man, in, like Miami Beach isn't exactly like a clean, pristine beach. You, you, you know this, and Miamians know this, South Floridians. You want like a really nice, good beach, you go to the west coast of Florida. 
You go to Marco Island. Or Sanibel. You go to Sanibel, like Captiva, Sarasota, Longbow Key. You get the hell away from Miami Beach. You don't go there. I mean, if anything, keep Biscayne. That's your that's your next best bet. By definition, any place that has beaches and can't snow just categorically can't be the worst city in America. So Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> I've been checkmated. <laughs> You didn't see that coming. I really didn't. No, like I, I can't. I can't dispute that. That's that's a very strong argument. I accept your apology. Okay. Other than Guantanamo Bay, which does seem to meet all the requirements I just said, and is within the sovereign power of the United agreed, States. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Other than that, the place where we torture people. Yeah. If you have no snow. And you have beaches, you can't be the worst city in the world. And one of the things that they talked about on the list is that Miami's median home price is so much, is so high compared to incomes. And Detroit's medium, median home price is so low. And so that made them better on the list. Yes, Detroit's median home price is low because that place is a freaking apocalyptic wasteland. Like, dude, Robocop. That, that doesn't is mean that doing... they're better than Miami. It means they're a whole lot worse. Don't blast Robocop, all right? He's doing his best over there. We can't, you can't, he's one man. He's one Robocop, all right? Anyway, no, but yeah, it like everything here is so expensive, but there's, there's like no one, there's no one paying any good wages or incomes. I get, and Detroit is a bastion of labor fairness. Detroit, it's the times to get in now, man. Buy low. <laughs> like if I had to tell you right now, okay. Plus, hold on a second. Plus, oh, if, I'm sorry, Mister. Oh, things aren't so good here in the birthplace of Motown and cars and the Flint tropics. Oh, wait, no, that's, that's Flint, Michigan, not Detroit. Never mind. I already just <laughs> yeah. killed myself. Motown no. and cars, things that are no longer existing in Detroit. Whatever. But, you know, <laughs> you can at least drive across the bridge and go to Canada right there. You got Canada right there. That's their selling point? You can't do that in Miami. You look at a map. There's just water or Everglades, swamp. There's nowhere to go. I get what you're doing because, like, you know, it's fashionable to hate on Miami. I don't right. know people, and, and you're just you're just sort of in that, and like, you're in that group. And I get that, like I'm you know, actively trying to get the hell out of well, this city. I know city. you got you got L.A. on the brain, but L.A. Like, is the best let me, city. Let me tell you this, because like I think you know you're going to say that Miami's worse than Detroit because it's funny. But if I had to tell you right now, uh-huh. like you had to wake up tomorrow and live your life in either Miami or Detroit, you're telling me you'd rather live in Detroit? Well, I live in L.A. That, that's not the hypothetical. I, I don't care. I reject your reality and substitute my own. <laughs> but you can't do that. This is like this is a universe where only two cities exist. Miami, Florida, sunshines, no state income tax, beaches, or Detroit. Smoldering, apocalyptic, wasteland devoid of redeeming qualities. Well, there go our Detroit listeners. Yeah, I'll, you know. Yeah, sorry. My apologies, Detroit. It's a proud city with uh, many great traditions, and you know Motown's awesome. But come on, like you're telling me you'd rather live in Detroit. I want to live in Los Angeles. Ryan. That's not the question. Your hypothetical. So tech, your, your question, which doesn't even exist anyway, I can't add to my own thing to it. No, I'm saying like like what I'm trying to do is because you're trying to tell me that Detroit's a better city in Miami. That's your premise, and so I want to test that. If you had to live, I've never been to Detroit. I don't know, Ryan. It's it's, it's frankly, it's rather be. Not good of me to just bash something I don't know. Have you lived in Detroit? No. Have you been in Detroit? I changed planes there once. Okay. So we don't know. So therefore, we only know Miami, and it's the worst. We have to it agree. Can't be. The, oh, and here's the other thing about 
like what they're sort of doing here, the little rhetorical trick that this magazine's doing, mm -hmm. it's only looking at the city of Miami, which is, you know, maybe like what, 5% of the Miami metro area live in. Like you and I, we don't live in Miami. We live in... Oh, they're saying it's just the city of Miami. It's not the dead Miami-Dade County right. and Kendall and... Right. Like, we live in the Miami metro the area, which has... Yeah. Met, right. It doesn't include Coral oh. Gables. It doesn't include Miami oh. Beach. It doesn't include Kendall, where we live, which are all excellent places oh, to live. interesting. Well, you know what? It's still all garbage. The, the whole... Now, now you're taking all of Dade County with you? Oh, come on. Yeah. So you're, so you're going to say not only is just the city of Miami, which has its problems, is worse than Detroit. You're going to say the whole county is worse than, worse than Detroit? I think people stopped listening now, right? <laughs> I just have a feeling. I have a feeling. Why? You think we got too deep into the Miami weeds? I there? think we got too deep in the Miami weeds. It, 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 it sucks. Don't let anything this man say, says make you believe otherwise. You know what? I hope... I hope, I hope Miamians read this article and I'll just have this massive wake-up call where they go, oh my God, yes, I'm living in a terrible place that's apparently worse than Detroit. Let's all get out of here. And then like, you know, the people who don't love this city can all leave. And then guess what? Now my commute to work doesn't suck anymore because traffic isn't disgusting. Do you know what's not in Detroit? What? Pitbull. Oh, I love me some Pitbull. Can't hate on Mr. 305. That man and you also mayor. And, and you love the city. There you go. I don't. I want to get the hell out of here. Yes, indeed. And we got to get out of here, too. Uh, my thanks yep. to you. Our thanks to Professor George Howard. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening to the Break the Business Podcast. And remember, be afraid.